Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Alessandro Prignolato. He's the director of analytics at Typeform. We talk about his journey and how he got to where he is. Uh, we discuss what is the optimal size of a data science team. We also cover how to use data science in SaaS businesses and in startups. We talk about what are the four pillars of a great data science strategy or data strategy in general, how to be an expert generalist in the data space. Uh, we also talk about the drawbacks of centralization in data science, uh, how to prioritize your work, and obviously what makes a great data scientist and how to go from a data scientist to a manager, a director, and an executive. It was a really interesting conversation. Uh, we recorded it in Barcelona in a, in a cafe, so at times it does get a little bit uh, noisy in the background. I apologize for that. But all in all, it was an excellent conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I think you'll get a lot of value out of it. Hi, this is Felipe, and I'm sitting here in sunny Barcelona with Alessandro. How are you doing, my friend? I'm very good. How are you? Very, very good. Very good. Very excited to, uh, to be speaking with you today. Thank, oh, thank you so you. much. Likewise, so my, my pleasure. Too kind. So, um, at the beginning of the of the interviews, I always like to ask people about how they got started in their in their journey and how they got started in data science. Uh, so, so the listeners can get to know you a little bit and, and hear about your early days in your career. Um, how did that look like for you? Where? How did you get started? Well, I have quite an atypical story. When I was very young, I was a lot into computers. And my dad was really cool about it, so I had a good few toys. I was playing video games a lot, and then I started, you know, with the Commodore 64 and the Big 20 and all of those. So when I was a kid, I was programming. So I spent a lot of time uh, playing with computers in the 80s. And when I was uh, 14, I went on to study computer science at college. Yes. And so I did it, and I liked it. But I've always been the kind of person that when I learn... Uh, I don't know, 60%, 80% of something. I'm not really interested to learn the other 20. Nice. And I want to learn something else. Yes. So I'm like a generalist fundamentally. And when I, by the time I was 18, I had met a lot of people and they were talking about sociology and psychology and economics and a lot of things that I had no idea of because I always studied computer science. Yes. So I did this uh, hazard move and I just uh, basically uh, looked for a university. Uh, they had like a different, uh, 
and purpose from the one I've been doing so far. So I said, okay, let's just go find something where I can learn all these things. And I found like a communication university mm-hmm. that was really varied. I had like one topic about, you know, one subject about psychology, one, all of those. So I did that. Okay. And so basically I didn't have a trade when I finished because it was half uh, IT and half communication. Yes. I decided to move to Ireland to learn a little bit of English. After having some horrible experience in like, starting up jobs, I was there in Italy, was really unhappy and depressed and because I really didn't know what to do with myself. So to get out of there, I went to Ireland. And there I simply fell in the first job that I found, that I was uh, dealing with Italian distributors for IBM. And I was basically entering their orders, you know. Yes. I was receiving a pile of faxes and I had to enter them in a computer. Wow. Yeah, that was a nightmare as well, awful. But back then I didn't really care about that because my greatest passion was uh, music. So I wanted to be a musician, right? So in parallel, what I did, I joined a uh, band in Dublin. And at the same time, I started out like uh, with this job and then I moved it to a better one. I joined uh, Adobe in 2001 and that was a good company and while I was at Adobe I had the chance to um, join the demand planning department and that's where I had my first experience with it turns out I'm good with Excel and I don't know why but it just comes very natural to me and my job over there was uh, also quite repetitive and boring because I was supposed to download all this data from SAP and other systems and cross them with Excel every day, over and over and over and over. Wow. And then it came to a point that I said, well, I don't want to do that. After yes. two weeks, I was desperate. <laughs> so I just got myself uh, a manual VBA, Visual Basic, and I automated the entire report. So something curious happened there in Adobe is that, like, uh, you know, other people across the company started asking me, hey, wait, what did you do there? You know, can you show me? And so uh, my boss was cool about it because I had freed myself so much time and also for the rest of the team and all this manual thing. So it was good with me, like, working with other departments and helping them out. Nice. So eventually I ended up building the reporting for uh, Adobe. And by then it was uh, year 2005 and I was doing like logistic distribution and demand planning. And that's when something a bit unexpected happened, which is that uh, this band that I was playing with eventually had an opportunity. So uh, I quit uh, my job in Ireland and I went to the United States to pursue it. I spent two years there uh, touring this band and then it turned out to be not quite sustainable unfortunately you know there was no money in there it was fun but I couldn't really ongoing like that so yes. basically I found myself I was like 32 and I didn't really have proper trade I had some experience in reporting and that was it and I was moving to Spain here so I arrived to Barcelona I quit the band and I had to restart over and I basically learned it the hard way. So that's how I got into analytics really. Uh, it was because, uh, again, I had to find the first job I could find because I needed to survive. Yes. And uh, since I was good at reporting, I was hired by a small consultancy company to go into the gas company here in Barcelona and uh, do some work with them on uh, uh, measuring how a certain system works. So basically they hired me as a functional analyst, but just because they thought they needed somebody good to report. Yes. And when I go there, I designed some part 
and then there was a BI department that implemented them. And that's when I discovered, I said, oh wow, people can do that. Mm. Ah, there is this thing called databases, I didn't know that. There is this thing that was like micro strategy back then, and all these BI reports, and it basically blew my mind because it was like, wow, this is all the things that I was doing in Excel that basically does itself. Yes. So, yeah. so I said, I want to learn that. I started to knock at every possible door, and I found a very hard time. I had a very hard time to get the opportunity, and eventually I sold uh, my soul to the devil and I went into consultancy for a, a company here which has basically the poor cousins of Accenture. And uh, so I joined this very hardcore consultancy company which was very much exploited. I was working like 60 hours weeks and I had to wear a, a suit and a tie. And I, I was coming to play from a hardcore band. You know, I was coming. It's a big shock. It was a big shock. Yes. But I did it and over those five years of consultancy uh, I really worked very hard but I also learned a lot. Up to a point that I felt comfortable enough to look for a different experience. Uh, I joined Softonic as a, a business intelligence analyst. Uh, my job was uh, talking to business people and translate their requirements into technical requirements, their business needs into technical requirements. And then I was liaising with a BI team that was building data solutions. For and that's when uh, it happened again that I got bored, meaning that I got to the 60, 80%. I learned data warehousing, I learned BI, I learned reporting, dashboards. I did a lot of uh, big data in Hadoop and uh, we started to you know, say, okay, so that's it. I would want something new. And uh, fortunately, I had a lot of time on my hands there because my job was cyclical. So at the beginning of the quarter, while everybody was deciding, uh, still on the objective, I had a lot of that time. So I decided to invest that study. And I did my first class of statistics. Yeah. Statistic one from uh, Princeton, you know, the one on Coursera, yes. Dr. Connery, that guy. I took that one. And uh, I took then the machine learning course from uh, Andrew Eng. Great. And uh, Andrew Eng would become the person that most inspired me to pursue a career in data science. Uh, I thought it would be impossible, but like Mr. Anger can explain neural network to a five years old. So basically by doing his course, I proved myself that I could understand those things. And I went uh, on to look for an opportunity to develop these skills. So I scored uh, a data scientist job at King, and that's when I started to get more into analytics. And from there, like a year later, uh, I was getting bored again. <laughs> <laughs> and a friend of mine uh, who was, uh, was working in Thai form, was, but then was just uh, a company with like 60 employees. I was just starting out, told me they were looking for uh, somebody. I started to have conversations with them and uh, eventually we decided that I would be starting a team for them. And that's what I've been doing for the past two and a half years. So here I am now. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's such, such an interesting journey. And, and something that I guess became, well, becomes quite apparent in listening to your journey is your interest in people from early on. How you were saying that even as, a, as an 18-year-old, even though you enjoyed computers and IT, you thought about, well, what does psychology have to teach me? You know, like what did you find that you found really interesting the people side and um, in your career, it seemed like you always had a, a people focus um, in, in dealing with people, even though you're working on the technical side. Where where did that interest come from? And yeah, I'll ask you that one first. Well, that's a very good question. I actually never thought of it that way. 
Um, I'm quite the extroverted type. Uh, my mom loved to teach. She wasn't a teacher, but she loved to teach. So since I was a kid, like there was a lot big focus on communication. And that's something that I do well. You know, it's like one of my strengths is that I can communicate very well with people. And uh, I try as much as possible to connect with them and to understand them deeply. And so I try to be as empathic as possible. And uh, I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. So this is probably what uh, motivated to uh, pursue this road. You know, it's also that it puts myself right now like uh, in a good position. It's kind of complementing the other skills because most head of analytics uh, that I meet around are people who have a, a much proper data science preparation, much more proper than I do. You know, as people are who have studied at university and they got their degrees and PhDs and I didn't do any of that. So my skill is different. My skill is that uh, I'm not uh, a fraction as good and proficient of anybody in my team in, in their own domain, but I'm the person who has a fairly good understanding of all of it. So if, if it it comes down again to the to being a generalist versus being a specialist. So what I'm trying to do now, and it is a lot of work, uh, is becoming like an expert generalist within the data domain. Okay, what That's do you mean by that? Expert generalist, uh, it's uh, a definition that is very recent because like generalists uh, are normally underrated. And, uh, yes. Because um, you feel like you feel like you're not really proficient at anything. So everybody's better than you. Yes. But until you do this switch and you understand that understanding many different things is also a skill, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, this realization made me uh, think that I might want to pursue that. And then I realized that there is such a thing as uh, a person who reaches a very strong understanding of many different disciplines. So you become an expert, but you maybe not a technical expert. It's more like a functional expert. You know, you understand how it works. Uh, sometimes I'm giving classes about AI for people who don't understand it at all, people who don't have any technical background at all. And I really enjoy doing that. And I'm, I'm not proficient in AI. I cannot build like recommender systems and I cannot really uh, code to that degree of proficiency. None of that. But what I have is like a very strong understanding of the basic concepts. And what I do is like try as much as possible to transfer this concept to people. Again, Andrew Ang was a big inspiration for that. For sure, for sure. And what are, what are some ways that you notice that people react better when being taught machine learning concepts? Or um, what, what are some ways that make it that, that maybe you use and make it easier for people to, to understand or that help them get the concepts in, a, in sure. a good way. Well, I have to admit that I'm not uh, that experienced, not yeah. proficient at yeah. it. This is something that I've been starting over the past year or so. Great. Uh, what I have is uh, I've been doing, giving a couple of talks about it. And what I do in these talks is uh, taking some very simple concept that everybody can understand. So I'll give you an example. 
I start uh, maybe with a problem, and this problem is uh, telling how much is an apartment might cost. Yeah. Then explain people that you might use several information about this apartment, for instance, the surface, to predict how much it works. And then I maybe give them example, and then I throw a line from this example, you know, and people understand, can see that the line there, out of all possible lines, is the one that better fits the data because it reduces the distance between the dot. You don't need to be a genius to understand that. Yes. And then I might show them like a, the equation of this line. You know, they don't need to understand it, but just to understand that one factor is the inclination and the other parameter is the height. Anybody can get that. It's not that difficult. And that's the switch. It's not thinking of, okay, I didn't tell this uh, system what the parameters should be. The system infer them from the data. So this is machine learning, this is artificial intelligence. And that's what generally at the stage I can see a big reaction in people because like they, it's very motivating for them to say, wow, I can understand machine learning. I thought I would never understand what it is. Yes. So it's so, okay, you get the basics. Right? And then what I do is adding sophistication bit by bit. And just saying, uh, okay, so instead of this being a line, maybe to capture a more complex reality, we needed to make a nonlinear equation, right? And I show a nonlinear regression. And then I said, and then maybe instead of using one variable, I'm going to use many variables. But the concept is exactly the same. Like you don't have a line, you have a hyperplane, but this hyperplane needs to fit as well as possible this data. And lastly, I do, I introduce the concept of a classification because I said, until now we predicted a number, but what we could predict is a binary outcome. A very good example, again, that we can relate with, uh, a spam filter. A spam filter, you either, either spam or not. So I just change the function for another function that is between zero and one, and then achieve the same. It's exactly the same, right? It's not, it's not new. And once I uh, explain of this concept of, uh, um, of in, having some inputs and then a binary outcome, I just make a parallelism and so say that's the way a neuron works. Your brain, you know, it has some inputs with some weights, which are the correspondence of the uh, parameters from your linear regression from before. And you have an output, zero or one, like a neuron activates or non-activates. And in your head, right now, the same is happening. And then what I do is just writing uh, a simple schematic representation of this neuron with these inputs and an output, and then I show a neural network and tell the right, you see this, like, okay, this is like only several hundred times this, you know, it's nothing else, it's just many, many, many of those, and each layer goes into the second one, and, uh, and the next layer is gonna go to the third one, and this is more or less reproducing uh, the way how our brain works. Through this process, I get to explain to somebody who's maybe a marketing specialist and doesn't have any technical knowledge whatsoever uh, what a neural network is. And I think uh, they can reach an understanding of it, and especially they can lose the fear of it. Because that's what empowered me to uh, pursue this career and after becoming a a data manager has been precisely that, losing the fear. Yes. Uh, and this came through 
occasion, seminars occasionally in which like just somebody demonstrated to me that I could learn those things, that I were, they weren't really that difficult. Because again, it depends on you then if you're going to get very deep right, and uh, specialize in one particular field or if you're going to be a generalist. But either way, it's only a matter of hours, you know. It's maybe it takes a, an incredible talent to be really an expert uh, of some very complicated uh, subject. But it's not really the only route, you know. You can uh, there's only routes which other routes you can take. Exactly, that's right. And this is such a such a great one to understand the um, to get the knowledge understanding at a deep level in a functional way, but still remember what it was like to be a beginner so you can explain it to, to beginners. Maybe, yeah, that's precisely how it is. And then these concepts are general enough to be very reusable across many domains. Yes. You know, like, uh, I think uh, grasping the kind of functional way is very strong. Um, Elon Musk is known to be uh, an expert generalist and it's another inspiration of course I could never aspire to do what he does but you know even if I do 10% of what he does or 5% of what he does it could be like an amazing achievement regardless exactly exactly right it's a matter of scale right but yes then, uh, yes and applying the, that skill um, to, to your domain uh, and your area of influence that's great yeah. and what what happens when you've been helping people remove this fear of machine learning? Uh, what does what does that enable them to to do? What does that enable them to think? How do they get to approach their work differently, and how do they work with your team um, differently? What happens when they when you remove or help them remove that fear of, of machine learning? What happens for them and and for you? Well, many things happen. Uh, in the context of work, for instance, here at Typhorn, uh, I joined the company where there was not really that culture in place. So people were scared of analytics. Uh, without getting into artificial intelligence, but let's just say plain analytics, even KPIs. Right? And, uh, sometimes you get some people who are really proficient at one area, but they're not good with numbers. Uh, yes. it, uh, it's the same, you see, like in any kind of environment. Imagine that you have a, a marketing director who is not extremely technical, like, and then he's going to be very good at content management, for instance, and, and the branding, no? but he's not really technical. In this specific example, he was uh, afraid of that. So it was like, a, kind of like when you were trying to make a point, and as soon as you dug a little bit into the number, it would kind of escape, you know? It's like, well, that's difficult. I don't have the time. I don't want to do that. But it is also a form of fear, probably, you know? I'm thinking, what is really thinking is that, I know I cannot understand that. Yes. So by sharing this knowledge and uh, sharing this very high-level concept and giving this understanding, you really open a lot of doors for the stakeholders to start working with data and to you to send the message through. Yes, exactly. It's, a, it's an enabler in many ways. And and it's such a great way to start to change the culture of, of an organization, to start making them more, more data-driven. 
And yeah. I think that that starts by making people comfortable with the with the concepts and and sure. uh, taking the fear away from from data literacy. Yeah, it takes that, and it takes a lot more too. Like, <laughs> what 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 would you say? Driving a data culture right now in the company is one of my uh, the four areas that I picked this year to drive the team strategy type form, and it's an extremely challenging one. It's uh, it's not as tangible, you know, and it's not as measurable as many other things. Yes. So there is like uh, uh, a lot of people in the company with which we have like uh, a continuous interaction. Interaction, sorry. And those are the ones that we work with the most. Yes. So these people here, it's easier to go on, on a one-on-one conversation and try to explain concept and introduce them by the time and you go develop their knowledge over a period of time. Of course, this method doesn't work at scale. Yes, that's right. Yeah, even at the smallest scale, like in our case, we are 200 now. I cannot possibly go and teach 200 people. So there are various strategies for the various... Uh, what we did right now is uh, decentralizing the team, which is something that we've been doing over the past, very recently, over the past... Uh, Six months. Decentralizing? Decentralizing. Because before, you know, the team was much smaller, so we had no other choice but starting as a service. This is what everybody does most of the time. And uh, there are several drawbacks in that approach, uh, which if you want, we go through later. I wanted to keep staying on the data culture. Uh, So we decided to embed data scientists within a, a... most teams, especially the product development cross-functional teams at Typhoon, because mm-hmm. we, have, we have a cross-functional model. And uh, data culture is not the only reason why we did it. There were several reasons for that uh, in this context. That, that allows to put a person there who has a, a daily interaction with other people that normally you wouldn't have. Yes. So in my case, like a management, I have interaction with leadership and some other top management at Typhoon, and that is my domain. And these are the people that I um, try to uh, literate. Is that, is that even a word? Yes. <laughs> is yes. that a word? Yes. <laughs> Try to teach to. Yes. And uh, instead, like at a higher scale, uh, what we are doing is like creating a network of data scientists. That, that my plan is basically to have a, a ratio of one data science per product owner in product. And they work within a team. So they participate in their daily stand up, in their prioritization meeting, you know, and uh, uh, in their day to day. So this way is one way that you can start promoting the data culture you kind of spread like a virus so to speak. correct Just go there and, of course this requires resources and uh, more often than not uh, the small companies tend to underestimate the optimal size of a data team mm. uh, when we were organizing a service it worked because you don't have the visibility on the lost opportunities, you have only the visibility. You know, you can see a backlog growing, but you don't really appreciate how much you're missing out. Correct. Like how much of the opportunity you're missing out. 
So I've been starting to talk to other executives who were more experienced than me, uh, that I met at previous jobs, and I spoke to Spotify, to Deliveroo, to King, some very uh, proficient and reputable uh, data executives. And it turns out that their recommended size for a data team within a company would be like around 10% of the workforce. And this might even get to a 15% if the company is small. So interesting. Okay. And uh, that was an eye opener. So I built a business case and then I presented it to Typhor. Unfortunately, we were in a phase of big expansion in terms of headcount. So there was an opportunity to grow the team and I was given the opportunity to grow this team. So right now we are at 7%. Yeah. Wow. Still less than what they recommend. You yes. know? Uh, we, we already observed that we can make an impact and we're getting very positive feedback from uh, from product, meaning that they're going to screen for more next year as we the budget. Excellent, excellent. That's what we're doing uh, right now. Yet again, there are other cases of company, like I have, I don't know, some management uh, telling me like, hey, but I come from, uh, I don't know, I come from this company and uh, they were they are huge and they have like less than the time that we do and they're still and they're still doing it and said yes but of they don't know what they're missing yes that's and right I, like he was talking about Squarespace uh-huh. and he told me yeah yeah during some time when I was in Squarespace we had ten data scientists in Squarespace and they were doing great and I said well possibly they had fifty data scientists they would be doing twice as great but I don't know it. Exactly. Exactly right. And and that's that's a, a big thing that, that people don't immediately see or understand is the the lost opportunity uh, through because uh, once once you start having a little bit of success with a data science team, the demand just increases exponentially. That the demand for your work for the the team's work just increases so so quickly that then it's it's nearly impossible to to keep up uh, and then you have to start picking on what to work on and what to not work on and you have to start prioritizing in that way um, how how do you face that challenge how do you pick um, what what work should be done and what work shouldn't okay uh, I have uh, several tools for that First of all, uh, uh, very strong and solid processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if they're simple, they don't have to be complex, but yes. they have to be strong. Uh, I follow the Kanban. Uh, that's what yes. I always like for analytics yes. uh, because it's flexible and it's fast. I have a type form hey. that people need to fill uh, in order to provide a user story that then gets automatically, you know, Typeform has integration and it gets connected, integrated natively to a Trello board. Mm-hmm. So basically people fill a Typeform and a task appears in a Trello board. And it goes into a backlog and then we have a bi-weekly or weekly meetings in which we prioritize this backlog. And right now it's all down to the team to do that. At the beginning I had to teach them a lot of this method, but now they're completely autonomous at prioritizing these tasks. These are those kind of reactive tasks. And these are uh, this is the kind of model that we're trying to run away from, the model in which people are asking things and we are providing answers. Yes. Right? Uh, this kind of requests still come in, though, and in great quantity. So you need to find a way to tell no. 
And let's find a way. It's just as simple as having a list of prioritized tasks. Mm-hmm. A list of prioritized tasks puts you in a position to say, sorry, I cannot do your task now because I have to do this task first. Yes. And uh, if the job, if you did a good job at specifying this task and building a business case around it, right, that there is no objection that this task is more urgent than the others. And so this trains people as well when they are asking us to uh, put a lot of work, well, at least a decent amount of work, into telling us what actions they're going to take based on this analysis. What's the outcome? What's the impact on the business? If it cannot be monetary, it doesn't matter. But we want to really see what the, what uh, is going to happen afterwards. So we are educating users to do that. And as we decentralize in this new model, these kind of tasks aren't more requests coming from uh, a team for us, but they are simply the outcome of some conversations and brainstormings that are taking place between the data scientists and the product owner or the head of marketing operations. Yes. So the switch that we want to do, which is the vision that we have for this team going forward, that we start to execute on, through this decentralization process is that we do not provide, we are not, we are not data providers. Yes. We are not report builders. Mm -hmm. My team does not build manual reporting. Excellent. And uh, what we want to be is thought partners. Uh, The model towards which I want to move is having people in the teams to have conversations with the data scientists who work with them within the team and has like uh, a broad knowledge of what's going on in their domain and their situation and their needs. And together, they prioritize a problem to work on. And it doesn't have to be a report. It has to be a problem. Uh, this is something that we borrow heavily from product. Uh, my favorite quote for our, from our head of product is like, fall in love with the problem, don't fall in love with the solution. That's and there right. is this kind of like symbiotic approach with product. You know, we are borrowing heavily from the agile methodologies and from product development methodologies and all these prioritization techniques. And they borrow heavily from our data. Yes. Right? So the idea... When this works very well, what happens is that the product owner and the designer, they're going to sit down with the data scientist and they're going to find out one problem that is the most important problem at the moment. And then together, they're going to brainstorm and figure out how they're going to tackle it. Yes. Uh, to eventually, they're going to go into some solution of some kind. By the time this solution hits the data scientist, by the time this task is the data scientist, he's already heavily involved in it. And he had a huge contribution to make this stuff happen. So he feels the ownership for it. Great. Right? So it's going to be extremely motivating to perform this task. Yes. And once this task is done, and hopefully it has a positive outcome, he's going to feel very proud of it. And there is going to be a lot of team work involved, like the product owner also will be proud of it. That's right. Uh, and it, don't, it comes down to teamwork. Now, uh, under, this new, under this new paradigm, uh, what's uh, uh, been a little difficult is the fact that we have to make a, a mind switch. This team, the data team, 
is uh, very, very close to each other. They, I hire them one by one because they're extremely cooperative right? and they really spend a lot of time with each other and they have like a very, very strong team feeling. Which, of course, I treasure and I really want to be that. Yes. But for the, uh, our vision to be executed, for this to work, uh, it is the product development team that has to fill that team and not the data team any longer. So we have to change yes. in that. You know? yes. in, a, in our cross-functional teams, we have one product owner, one designer, two developers, two QA, one data guy only recently. Wow, right. And that's what I'm telling them. Like, uh, this is your team. Right? Yes. There is team number one and there is team number two. Right? And they're equally important. Uh-huh. They're equally important, but uh, you shouldn't really have like this feeling of us and them. You know, you should be, that should be your team first, and we should be your team then. Of course. Wow. And it's a little bit the same for me right now as I'm, uh, I put together this team now and I'm ready to transition towards more of a strategic role. Yes. And I also have team one and team two. Uh, team one is uh, what we refer to as the business circle in Typhoon, which is basically the top uh, non-executive member of each area. The top manager of each area. So what we do is uh, basically instead of uh, having leadership team to drive operations, leadership drives only very high level direction and strategy and uh, basically empowered the business circle to own the business performance. Right. So business circle owns the business performance. They're accountable for uh, hitting the company objectives. Okay. And the idea with that is that uh, we are much more empowered than to execute on the decisions that we make because we are close to the operation, we are close to the day-to-day, we have a direct relationship with our reports. Yes. And this is what happened there, like uh, uh, the business circle is my team and data is also my team. Uh, you know, but I, what we cannot afford doing is being like uh, silos reporting to each other in a meeting room every week, it wouldn't work. Yeah. So this is the kind of approach that we follow. That's a really great way to, to structure it. Uh, yeah, I really, I think because it, it um, yeah allows people to to take ownership and take the decisions. Having cross-functional teams, it means that you everything is being co-created across the, the business. Yeah. Um, and and people are are engaged and, and motivated. Uh, it, it it sounds fantastic. Um, yeah, really well done. And I wanted to, to ask you, you mentioned that through this, this method, um, a lot of the work was, you mentioned it as as reactive or, or demand-driven, that yeah. essentially that the, the user stories come in. Yeah. Um, and it obviously works very well for the decentralized team. And what about um, more strategic projects or, or non-reactive projects that maybe would come as a foundation that will make the reactive projects more easy to do or, or something like that. Is there, um, is there any type of work done on that side or, um, or approaches that you guys have taken to? Okay, uh, the reactive uh, model uh, is uh, what used to happen before uh-huh. as we were organized as a service. Ah, yeah, okay, yeah. for the central team, that makes sense. Yes. 
And right now that we've transitioned towards, we maintain the process for debit management and prioritization because they still work very well. We still have the product owners to raise their task through a typhoon and put them in a Kanban. Yes. So that we have visibility, we can prioritize. But <clears throat> the, uh, as I was saying, the, at a team's level, within the, uh, the cross-functional team's level, um, then uh, the initiatives are the results of uh, a collaborative process. Yes. So, and this is where this initiative become proactive. Because it's the data scientist that is doing this suggestion based on the conversation that it had from the product owner. Most yes. of the time, uh, the product owner, his job is to spec and prioritize problems. And the data scientist, he's the one who's going to propose solutions. So it's yes. much more proactive already. Yes. Okay? At a higher level, like a strategic level, mm -hmm. that's where I see my role coming in. Mm -hmm. Until now, I had a massive challenge because uh, basically I'm wearing three hats at Typhoon. Uh, I have a, all the data scientists report to me directly uh, until uh, tomorrow, actually. <laughs> until That's Monday. Right. Uh, all the data scientists reported to me directly. So I'm the manager of the data scientist. I'm a director of data. And uh, right now, we don't have uh, an executive of analytics in, uh, in Thai form, uh, like a VP of analytics or a CDO. Yep. And therefore, I'm filling in for this role. Uh, I'm not sure if it's, it's going to stay that way. They might get somebody in more experience. I might evolve into this role. This is all to be defined. Yes. Okay, but it's not relevant right now. What, what I'm trying to say is that I'm having like, I'm wearing three hats. Yes. And so, until very recently, I had a serious problem that I couldn't really focus on strategy because it didn't have any bandwidth. Yes. Because my other two hats were taking up all the space. And so I did a lot of uh, work over the past uh, six months or so to try and make a plan to resolve the situation and transition to uh, a more uh, strategic role. It was very painful because I love my work as a director. Yes. I love being the manager of the team. I love this team with all my heart, you know, like I'm, I'm almost paternal in my management style, you know, like I really care about them, which is the reason why my team, I think, is a, is a happy team, you know, because of people caring about them. Yes. And so it was painful. But once I was decided, once I decided to do it, I put some uh, measurements, uh, some... Uh, measures in place and I just make sure that this transition wouldn't break it right? and uh, it included uh, uh, making the team autonomous towards a whole bunch of different initiatives like uh, from processes uh, to literacy to uh, introducing a little more senior profiles to introducing a couple of leads even though I want to maintain the structure as horizontal as possible and uh, the last step of it is uh, hiring a head of analytics. So I hired the head of analytics who's going to start this Monday. Uh, I'm extremely pleased also because I found a woman for this role. And uh, women have superpowers. Yes. So I'm very excited about it. Yes, yeah. I agree. <laughs> women it's very hard to find women in data science, but the, the very few that we have are amazing. We have three women in data science that are amazing. And uh, so Vanessa starts on uh, Monday, and uh, she was picked uh, 
because she has a strong between centric. So what I wanted to do, and also because she has a strong business consultancy background, which is what I didn't have. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the most uh, precious pieces of advice that was given by our chief people officer uh, is that sometimes we tend to focus a lot on our weaknesses. Yes. And uh, instead, uh, more often than not, there is more value in focusing on our strength. What is it that I can do well? And then you can find other people to join the team and fill the gap where you're weak. So I could have tried at age 40 to become like a, a very hardcore business consultant and spend a lot of time in it. Or else I could just leverage what I do well and just hire somebody who knows it. Yes. And this is the idea now. Okay, but this is, this is a really interesting point because focusing on your strengths, it means that you A, have to have the self-awareness to know what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, right? Yeah. And be, be comfortable within yourself. And then secondly, there, there's an element of hiring people that are better than you at other things. And it's something that you mentioned before that you do with your team. Um, and, and obviously now with this with this new hire, it's something that you're comfortable in doing. And I think it's it's a great way to be to be a manager, to be a leader. Right to hire people that are better than you, but you need to be self-aware and comfortable with doing it. Okay, I see what you mean. What um, what what makes you what makes you like that, and what do you see the value of? Well, probably because I'm a bit pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not really. quite, quite you know the, what? Quite uh, I don't I don't see them as being better than me. Okay. I see them as being simply more specialized. Yes. Yeah, uh, as the director of analytics, uh, I don't own only uh, analytics. Mm-hmm. I own uh, analytics, machine learning, and uh, data operation, data engineering, business intelligence. We call it data operations. That area. By, uh, Vanessa, she's probably as good as a people manager as I am. Well, that's my expectation for her. Yes. And uh, she's probably more proficient than me at uh, business analytics. That's what she does. Mm-hmm. But there are other areas that I control and that I master that she doesn't master. Yes. Uh, like the core of my technical experiences in data warehousing and data engineering. That's what I yes. did before when I was a consultant instead yes. of doing business analytics. And all that. Yes. So uh, this puts me, again, I think uh, being a generalist puts in a very good position for being a manager within data science. Mm-hmm. Because like uh, this fact of having, as we were saying before, this functional knowledge spans across uh, several domains. It's particularly suitable for data science because in data science, the scope is insane. It's, uh, the, if you think about it, there are very few disciplines in which the scope of what you need to learn or the scope of what you could learn and would be useful so wide and broad as the design. Yeah. You know, you need software engineering skills, you need statistics, you need business analytics, and you need uh, data modeling, you need like, you know, computer science, you need programming, you need like so much yes. of all these different things that anybody who's a, like a specialist, like a hardcore specialist, 
I think you would hardly have the skill to be a good manager in data science. And then, like, there are many, many things in the middle, not many intermediate uh, solutions and people. You know, each one of us sits in some shade of gray between black and white. Now, then, uh, then I don't know, probably in every different company, maybe there is the requirement for a different degree of specialization. For instance, if you are in a company that builds the software for image recognition, then the head of analytics should be probably more technical. We are building farms, so it's not really the technical of a product. Yes. So somebody who's so technical, an expert in machine learning, maybe wouldn't have as many communication skills, that wouldn't have as many people skills, that wouldn't have any business skills, you know, so wouldn't fit in Thai form. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer the original question, I don't think it's a matter of uh, it's a matter of, like I see people as having a, a certain amount of credits. Uh, imagine you have a hundred coins, and I also have a hundred coins, and you decide to put these hundred coins, fifty in machine learning and fifty in uh, statistical modeling, and I decide that instead to put two coins each across the entire spectrum. Yeah. Maybe I have ten in uh, or twenty in data warehousing, and maybe I have. Time in analytics, and you know, it's just a different mix. Yes. And then the most important side of it is that you can earn those coins by like uh, learning and studying and, and cooperating, especially cooperating. That's yes. when you are, uh, if you are a giver, if you really, in my case, I love teaching. It's probably, I learned it from my mom because my mom loved teaching and she t- taught me all the time. And so I'm teaching people and I like to teach people who are then are really eager to teach me. Yes. Yes. That's one way. And then there is study and there is development. And that's how you, you earn your coins. And then you only have to choose where your coins want to be. And thank you for inspiring me to this. I'm going to go out of here and probably now write to talk about generalization. Yes. yes. You <laughs> thank should. you, Philip. Yes. <laughs> this was very inspiring. Thank you should. This is so interesting. This it's is so very interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's worth, uh, Yes. And I wanted to ask you about the what you were mentioning about your team. So you said that having a flat structure in the team was was important for you. So you said that at the moment all the data scientists report to you and now they will report to, to yeah. the new role. Yeah. Uh, why why is having a flat structure important? Yeah. Uh, to me I have a a belief about structure and organization, which is the same that I have about specialization. In this case, not specialization of, of an individual profile, but specialization of the work within the team. Uh, the thing is that sometimes we see structure and uh, visualization as this very, very powerful tool uh, specialization element it's very very powerful too yes. and uh, instead I see them as uh, necessary evils yes uh, so in the case of specialization uh, I think you should people it's recommendable to have your data scientists to do as many different things as possible and work in as many stakeholders as possible as long as it's possible so to speak when the company is smaller right? And then in some cases, there are other circumstances that are going to make it uh, 
mandatory to specialize the team a little more. For instance, this embedding and this decentralization of the team makes it so that right now we have two areas, business analytics and product analytics, and the product guys only work with product. Right? But that's evil because the product is the business. Yes. And so uh, it's all about like looking for this kind of trade-off between uh, specialization and uh, the holistic view of the business and the product that you gain if you're not specialized. And we structure is the same. There are like some companies and managers that are very, very structure-driven. So what they would do is hire a lead and then they hire the team under the lead. Right? You know, I would never do that. I would never do that. Uh, my approach was about hiring one person at a time. That's extremely important to hire one person at a time. And have the team grow organically. And then uh, simply observing, and you're going to see things happening. And this thing might happen and tend to happen quite naturally. Uh, for instance, you will see normally what tends to happen is that there is one person in the team that everybody starts looking up to. Mm-hmm. And everybody starts going there. And this person possibly has a knack for helping people, and so he helps everybody. And before you know, you have a lead. You only have to go there and give the title. Effort is zero. That's uh, right. And it's also twice as good because then people in the team are going to recognize, they did recognize as a natural leader, so they're going to be eager to work with them. And uh, another thing that can happen is that even if this doesn't happen, if there is nobody that stands out, then uh, maybe the simple opportunity will stand out. And that you're going to choose if you want to, if you have somebody that is strong enough and you want to try and develop them into a leader, yes. or else if uh, nobody has the required experience and then you have to go look for a leader outside. In which case, I will have them to recruit him. The, the team? Yeah. Uh, right now, for this health analytics process, I didn't... Uh, um, I didn't interview any candidate that did a spe- didn't pass two interviews with the team. That's awesome. Yeah. I was number three. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, they, they get to choose their boss. You know? Yeah. And uh, the thing is that since it was so important to them, so if, uh, I'm going to interview my team, my boss, you know, so it's like, you know, the team was very conscious about it and they were really afraid because they like to have me as a boss. So they yeah. were afraid of this change because it's natural. Yes. And so the reaction that happened is that one of them took lead, naturally, and then uh, drove a lot of dynamics with everybody else. And they put a good uh, recruitment process, and not even NASA for astronauts has a recruitment process like that. And so it's very, very horizontal, and it's all meant as assessing all the very broad range of skills that I discussed before. Yes. And uh, so it's a technical interview that lasts probably a couple of hours. We do it like in two, in two different sessions. And we don't expect anybody to know everything. Right? But that gives like this identity kit that uh, basically it allows us to learn where this person put his coins. Right? Yes. And those, uh, that makes me do like a, a much better, provides me with a much better, a lot much more information than to choose between a candidate and another because I have an identity to this candidate. Right? And by the time they reach me, these people have been uh, considered, the team like felt comfortable enough with the idea of having this person as a boss to put this person through the yes. process. 
and uh, they also felt comfortable enough about their technical skills, at least in some areas. Then, but we test technical skill, we test soft skill, and we test business skills. It's not really strictly technical. Great, great. And once they got uh, to me, uh, I'm really beyond that, and I'm really looking at people, looking at the person. Yes. And trying to understand what kind of person this is. And especially like uh, see if this person embodies certain values that, uh, that are very important across the team culture and the company culture. Excellent. That's really great. And how do you test the, the three types of skills, the, the technical skills, the soft skills and the business skills? Uh, we really have a, a structured uh, interview with like technical tasks, business tasks, and basically like some in some cases the technical test is really problems or, uh, you know, as uh, if it really was a test in a university or something. But what we do is putting the candidate very comfortable before in front and telling here, I'm going to ask you a lot of stuff which you're not going to know, but it doesn't matter because nobody can know everything. And then I'm going to put them in front of a problem. And we, you know, you put the same problem, you know, you want to test SQL skills. So you put an SQL uh, problem in front of this candidate and many candidates. So you obtain, at the same time, you obtain a benchmark because you see how everybody else performed. Yes. You can uh, uh, do a, we always ask for a self-assessment before so that you can see how aware people are of their skills. That helps. So much. I love that. And uh, um, eventually, you know, we just walk through the people to this technical test. In uh, business, it's more about uh, uh, we present them with real-life situations and problems that we have a tie form, and uh, we are not really interested in, in the outcome of their uh, uh, reasoning, but more in the thought process. Um, in product as well, we ask them to describe the user journey or to describe what they think of the product. So if they didn't try the product, they don't have a chance. Yes. You understand the chance. You'd be surprised how many candidates don't come after having like had a good look at the product. Wow. I mean, they saw a tie form before. Yes. And, you know, that's what normally captures people because it looks and feels good. Yeah. But they didn't actually bother to register and the product is free. Or they, or they don't know the pricing model, you know. So if there's anybody, potential candidate there, you know, uh, that's be like... My first advice, like learn the product inside out and find excuses to let your interviewer know. Of course, yeah. yes, yes. And, and create an account and create, a, in this case, a form. Uh, that's that's really interesting. And talking about the where where candidates put their, their coins in and what skills they they focus on, yeah. um, what, what value do you see business consulting bringing into... Um, Ahead of head of analytics role, enormous, enormous. Um, well, hold on. It it, it depends. Like uh, we said, uh, there are different type of data profiles, infinite types of data yes. profiles. Like in my case, business consultant was in my background, so I wanted to hire a head of analytics who had that ground, that background, because I felt that within the team, that was the. Uh, kind of skill that we were lacking, which is not down to technical skill, but it's about down to uh, having done it before. Mm. Give you a very good example. Okay, we want to redo our pricing strategy. Mm -hmm. I I didn't do pricing before, 
and I can understand the problem and I can get like, but I don't have the kind of like substantive expertise, like, you know, the domain knowledge. So I found uh, Vanessa has done like 10 years of business consulting in growth. I mean, we are a startup in hypergrowth, yes. so how can it be like a better, uh, you know? <laughs> I, I'm doing that. I, I am doing that. And the one, uh, one of the four areas that I mentioned before is driving business outcome. And uh, I really do my best, and I want to be the driver of that. But you can, you know, the way I'm going to have to be the driver of that is complementing my skill with somebody else who's done it before. Yes, that's fantastic. That's that's great. And you said before that you that you have been wearing three hats in your role and doing the well, not quite happy because I cannot do all of them. That's so right. this is why I, I've been happy so far. I really had an amazing time so far. But what happened is that uh, I sacrificed the strategic heart. Exactly. And uh, now I'm basically letting go of uh, operations and the team, which is a very painful process for me, I have yes. to admit. Yes. And, uh, and so I can uh, focus more on strategies. That's great. And it's, and it's a very exciting uh, transition. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the main responsibilities of each of those uh, three hats? So that the manager uh, or head of analytics, the director role, okay. and the, and the CDO or executive role, what do you see as the responsibilities and the differences uh, between those three? Um, in a generic way or for me? Well, I, both. <laughs> okay, because I have a particular management style. So basically what I do, uh -huh. I, well, from what I'm told, yes. right, what I do, I hire some very extremely smart and curious young people who need development. Yes. And then uh, I invest an outrageous amount of time in them. And I spend a lot of time personally training them. I love that. Yeah. And growing them. And um, so a manager is getting like very good people, very curious people, smart people with potential. Then uh, empower them to develop this potential and then just let them be and watch them uh, being successful. And like, but just like simply taking very good care of them. Uh, I think this thing works and it's successful because the team knows that I really do genuinely care about them. You know, like they're my friends. I yes. spend a lot of time with them. And uh, at the director level, uh, it's more about joining all the dots because every single uh, function within the team, and we said, I repeat, there is data operations, there is machine learning, and there is analytics, uh, they, all of them tend to have their own priorities and uh, for this reason, uh, you know, they don't have like the complete picture of what's going on with data and what's going on with the rest of the company. They also, more often than not, they don't have the, really the time to go around and establish a relationship with other stakeholders and uh, like, you know, uh, produce a holistic view of the operations in the business and uh, execute to improve it. Yes. Yeah, this is what I think a director does. Apart from keeping my managers happy the way I kept the uh, reports happy before. And uh, then 
at a strategic level, which is something that I tackle now. Uh, I've been working very hard at answering this question uh, over the past uh, three or four months, or since, as I was saying, I did this plan to transition towards that. The first half of this plan was making the team autonomous, so that as I left, it wouldn't fall apart and be just as happy and motivated as they are now. And the second part was uh, framing the problem, because like the expectations that I had from leadership and from my boss, who was uh, the CFO, was like uh, be more strategic, turn into a strategic role. But now it's not really that automatic to explain somebody uh, what uh, be having a strategic role to somebody who's never done before, because it's very abstract. Yes. You know, it's not really, it's not really that easy. So um, I've been working with uh, a coach, which is something that I really recommend to everybody. And uh, together with this coach, we worked at framing the problem. And so creating uh, a set of responsibilities and then uh, summarizing this set of responsibility in two, four main areas, and then set key results or definition of success uh-huh. for all of these uh, areas. So basically, this comes down to as uh, I want to be VP of analytics. Right? So what should I accomplish and how do I know that I accomplished it? The result of this work uh, basically, what I did is uh, looking at examples of previous initiatives that I had done that I thought had a positive impact on the company as a whole, rather than the team. Yes. Because like, the focus, uh, the biggest difference is probably that, that the team of analytics is mostly concerned with the company and not as concerned with the team because there are managers who take care of the team. Yes. Right? And so I picked... Uh, anecdotal examples of occasions in which I felt I contributed to the company. And then I abstracted those to these areas of responsibility, which are uh, data culture, business outcome, and that includes product outcome. Um, Then the the data-driven product development in the sense, though, or uh, putting intelligence uh, in the product, creating data-driven features in Typhoon as a product. They might or might be not based on artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is a big misconception nowadays that everything needs to be machine learning. Yes. And uh, so these are three areas. And the fourth one is uh, uh, guaranteeing the integrity and availability of data and the scalability of the infrastructure. So these are the four areas which I identified. And now I'm working at building definition of success with these four areas, which is proving quite challenging. Yes. It's proving quite challenging because in some cases it's easier than others. For instance, like the infrastructure, you can create metrics on availability time, uptime, and SLA, and this kind of stuff. So it's easy to measure more. But the business outcome, I still have to figure it out. That's right. Uh, how do you how do you measure the impact of uh, a VP of analytics on business outcome? 
not really that obvious. That's the toughest one. But as data culture right now, I am uh, using Typeform to send out a quarterly survey and trying to do a self-assessment of everybody in the company on some specific questions about data culture. It's very important, it's very complicated, you have to do it right. To pick the right trait, traits that you want to measure and put them in, uh, in such a way, uh, word them in such a way that they don't bias the users and that they uh, allow for them to give like a very true and honest representation of how they feel that in the company. So I'm in the process of figuring this one out. And so this will give me a benchmark, and then at the end of last quarter, I can put this again. That is excellent. That's excellent. And, and what about measuring the, the data-driven products? Uh, I created some, I'm working on creating some key results now uh, that are for the team. Uh, so they are our OKR for this quarter. Yes. And this OKR for this quarter include putting data-driven features on the roadmap. Right now, I'm facing a challenge, which is that I've been facing a great challenge so far, which is the company is in hypergrowth. And Typeform is so far, you can you can uh, refer to Typeform as a unicorn. So we double, triple, double, double revenue, right? And right. so the challenge is huge. And to keep this speed of growth, we need to focus on uh, Horizon One initiative, you know? So. We can, of course, do some experimentation, but it has to be the kind of experimentation that brings results in the short term so that you can keep fueling the growth. So uh, data-driven features don't quite necessarily fall into this category because it's more like crazy experimentation, or at least I want it to be crazy experimentation. Yes. I want it to be the horizon two, horizon three stuff. And then maybe I will explain you why. And so, the way we resolved it is that there is one specific team that, by definition, they're trying to build what will kill Typhoon. And so out of all the colonies, out of all the swarms, which are this cross-functional team, they are the ones who have a real opportunity to do something disruptive. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want machine learning to be. So I'm embedding four people in there starting this quarter. Um, two are machine learning experts, one is a, a, an analytics, product analytics person, as one is an intern. And uh, because if you find a quality intern, that's very good value for money. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so they are there with the idea of uh, doing crazy things. Because that's the problem with the product. A lot of people is like focusing so much on the technical implementation. You know, if I had a penny every time I heard uh, somebody in leadership or management saying we need to do machine learning. No, you don't need to do machine learning. What you need to figure out is a spectacular product idea that solves uh, a real problem in a very creative way and nobody else has done it. Yes. And then machine learning could or could not be the technology and the technical solution that empowers that um, and then makes it possible. That's right. Because like, uh, right now, my biggest problem in this product is what to build. Yes. You know, uh, because I can put my machine learning guys to, I don't know, do, uh, for instance, prediction, predicting the completion rate of the farms. Mm -hmm. I could do that. But what can I expect from that? 
maybe a five percent uplift in, in uh, retention. Uh, big deal. We, we're not going to break it like that. I think we need to be a lot more daring like that. And we have to make a lot of big mistakes and uh, experiment like crazy. And it seems the facts uh, seem to put me right lately because uh, Survey Monkey, our bigger competitor, not uh, long ago, they uh, made a huge marketing stunt out of hiring this uh, machine learning guru as a CTO. I don't remember who his name was, but like this massive profile, very high profile. Right? So they created this thing that was going to put uh, uh, machine learning artificial intelligence into the former creation experience, and it was going to be the next uh, Facebook, right? Well, it turned out it wasn't. Because like they provided some tool that helped somewhat people to build the farms more effectively. But uh, as Typhorn, our direct competitors, we, we didn't observe any spike or drop in our uh, KPIs because of serving monkey release. Yes. So yeah, that's the one situation in which I really want to go uh, very experimental. That's great. And how much space do you have or opportunity have to be to be very experimental and being a bit a bit out there? Well, right now the opportunities I have is the one of putting uh, four people into uh, a cross-functional swarm. Yeah. This cross-functional swarm is experimental by definition. And so I think there's going to be some kind of a split of capacity, which I still have to figure out exactly because this is happening this week. Uh, it's, yes. It is this week that my people go and sit there Great. and uh, it is next week that two new people join. You know, it's like it's happening right now. Wow. But I would like to have three lines of work. Uh, one would be um, one would be working with the Swarm at their project and together with them and discuss functional fashion and maybe trying to empower things that before they thought they were impossible and maybe data empowers that. Yes. And this is like a, a, an, average, uh, an average degree of uh, experimentation. And then I'm going to have them to work on maybe some other ideas that they have that are like, uh, they bring value, even though they're not as experimental, but they bring some value, but this need to be uh, like quick wins. Yes. I'll give you an example. We, we already have uh, uh, an LDA algorithm that classifies topics of the typhoon that people feel. So we have this topic clustering, we can create clusters of topics. And then we create a numerical representation that is of each typhoon that represents the structure, how long it is, what kind of questions it is, and all of that. And we can use these also to create clusters. So we can create clusters within clusters. Based on that, it's quite easy for us to provide that completion rate uh, uh, prediction or to provide suggestions to the user the way SurveyMonkey does, right? But I know I'm kind of contradicting myself right now because I'm saying that I want to be more disruptive with that. But I still see some value as putting like a small investment there, you know, so that uh, we can do the 80-20 and we can tell Survey Monkey that we have it too. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, but we have to be smarter about it. Yes. I think uh, they really have this clumsy and very complex problem. I want to find something. I want to give the team to find something that is like uh, 
very simple and can be done like much more quickly and with a little investment. That probably meets 80% of the, uh, of the necessity or even 60% of the necessity. No? Yes. Okay, so the first area uh, um, experimentation with the team maybe would be uh, 50%. This would be a 30%, and the other 20%, I would like to do uh, something against uh, every product agile development goals, which is like building some uh, very quick prototype based on hunches and ideas. But it has to be like something that it has to be very small and very dirty and very quick, yes. like hackathon style. Yes. Uh, I have an idea, a creative idea of something that concept that I want to develop. And uh, I don't want to say it here because it's not. Yes, uh, yes, no, definitely. It's a, that's a little bit uh, too experimental. But. And uh, I have this idea and I want to validate it. So if I spoke to a product person, they're going to okay, build the document in which we're going to describe you know, all the things that this validates and all the reason why, and then we're going to do interviews with the user and then we're going to. But before doing that, I would like to spend a week or having the intern to spend a week to create a working prototype, even if it's a, if there is already a solution packed into it, which is what they're not supposed to do. But I would do it anyway, because that gives me like the opportunity to just go and, uh, you know, go and tell and show this thing to marketing, to product, uh, to my boss, to people in leadership and say, you know, and say, look what I've done here. What do you think of that? And you might collect feedback and you might start conversations and yes. they might have some other ideas and, you know, and that's what, how I want to spark that, create the spark that is going to bring to the disruptive innovation in which we do something that nobody else has ever done. Exactly. And that's super exciting. That is super exciting to, as, as you transition to this new role, to already be thinking about how you can make a how you can make a difference uh, in the direction of the business in the direction of the strategy in the direction of the product um, through through methods like this um, because one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, is how closely you would have to be aligned to things like a product roadmap or the strategy of the business in order to hit the to change or improve business outcomes as, as one of your core uh, four pillars. And I think that that goes like very well with this approach that you were just mentioning, which I think is so exciting, which is sort of almost like the other side of the coin, where on one side you might have the product roadmap, a, a strategy for the company, and a, and a direction where everyone is pulling. And on the other side of the coin, it comes the experimentation, the innovation, the possibilities through data-driven um, features, ideas, etc., and, and and bringing new things into people's minds. And um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about how, well, about the other side of the coin, and how do you think about both of those sides um, now transitioning into your more strategic role? Yes, uh, the way we want to go about it, but the way we are going about it is the same as uh, everybody else does. Uh, we have a go-to-market strategy. And we have a, a direction that we want to take as a company. And uh, what we are trying to do is uh, as little prescriptive as we need to be yes. with the teams. So we define some strategic boundaries for this uh, 
for the strategy, which is a, a, a target public, the kind of people that we're after, and within this target uh, uh, public, some uh, indeed strategic boundaries, uh, which are like uh, giving directions to the team and knowing, like you know. Uh, within this boundary, they can experiment as much as they like. And this boundary are pretty wide. The only thing that they need to guarantee is that uh, whatever they do uh, needs to align with the company strategy. That's all they need to align, the, to do these boundaries. But they, so we can still have pretty wide boundaries and still be aligned. So within this boundary, the team experiments. And... Uh, as I was saying, like the cross-functional team experimentation goes along the line. And then I want to have this very little bit, probably, I don't know, what is it, like a 10% of our capacity dedicated to crazy stuff. <laughs> and the crazy stuff might spark an idea that then is going to end up in problem within the, within the boundaries again. That's right. So that's it. I love it. I love it. That's, that is such... That is such a good, a good approach. So it was a great approach. Um, one thing that I was, I wanted to ask you uh, before, and it's sort of going back a little bit in the discussion, is um, about the the drawbacks of of centralization. We we mentioned obviously sure. um, the topic a couple of times, but I wanted to to ask you, I guess, more 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 directly, more formally. What do you see as the as the drawbacks of having a centralized team versus the the new approach of decentralization okay. uh, a service team encourages the kind of reactive um, yes. uh, behavior from part of the data scientist and as well encourages stakeholders to come and ask uh, for uh, reports or asking for simply data points as opposed to having this continuous relationship or partnership with the data scientist so I think uh, that is the biggest uh, Awesome, fantastic. Um, and um, I wanted to ask you, just because I'm really curious about this, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your, where you said that you learn something or get to a, a point where it's 80% of, of say, like 80% of the perfect solution or 80% of, of um, the, the deep expertise and and you said you get bored and you like to do something different. Um, why Why do you think that is? And how do you think that's affected and shaped your career? The oh, wow. fact that you're, you're like that. The why is a big uh, question. I think it's simply diversity. <clears throat> simply that uh, each one of us sits somewhere in a range between uh, a generalist and a specialist. Yes. And I just happen to be a generalist, like, you know, the generalists like to know as many things as possible, as opposed to knowing one thing very well. And what's driving this, uh, this uh, I don't know, it's hard to the correlation causation kind yes, of that's right. <laughs> I don't really know if I lose interest in because I'm a generalist or if I'm a generalist because I lose interest after a while. <laughs> <laughs> But that's probably, uh, I need to further my the knowledge in philosophy before giving you a good answer for that. Like, uh, I'm not really sure I can do that. <laughs> and and um, 
and how do you think that's shaped your your career? Well, very much. Uh, I mean, if I hadn't been like that, so imagine that my first love, that it was, as I was telling you, my first love was computers, right? So I would have probably had a much more uh, ordinary kind of trajectory projection, you know, I uh, went to school and then I wanted to study computer science at the university. I would probably start in as a developer of some kind somewhere. And, uh, you know, maybe stay within that area and become a specialist. And right now, I don't know, I might have fallen in data as well, you know, or maybe not, maybe I'll be a software engineer or, or maybe a pole dancer, what do I know? <laughs> exactly right. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. I love like, it. Uh, one thing is there is any generalist listening out there. Like if I think one thing that I regret is not having figured out this one before and having felt inadequate for so long as I was comparing myself to specialists who were very good at, at one thing without realizing that what was uh, uh, my strength is being good at many things. So all that frustration, you know, would have disappeared. And possibly I could have uh, uh, I could have concentrated on developing this kind of horizontal skill, you know, which eventually I did, yes. but I didn't do it consciously until very recently. Uh, Interesting. So yes, realizing that would have yeah, generally earlier. That's that is fantastic. That is fantastic. Um, and so I to wrap up, I only have. It should be one, but I'll make it two questions, just two two parts. Um, about advice, advice that you, um, that you have, and the first part will be advice that you have for data scientists, and the second part will be advice that you have for data science leaders and managers and people that want to, uh, that are in a stage looking to progress their career for like that. What um, what advice would you have for for data scientists? The biggest uh, uh, mistake that I see, uh, well, in my opinion, yes. that I see that the scientists doing uh, nowadays, especially uh, aspirant data scientists and people who want to learn, is uh, focusing so much on uh, building models, predictive models, and machine learning because that's what's cool right now. So before doing that, uh, it, it's very important that uh, an aspiring data scientist decides what kind of job does he want to have? Where does he see himself in the future? Do you see yourself uh, building uh, data-driven products? Do you see yourself building image recognition system, fraud detection system, like I'm working in a company uh, that does that kind of product, that kind of uh, product? Is that what you want to do? Or uh, other kind of problems that are really analytics driven. I don't know, you want to predict the stock market, or do you want to do that kind of job that requires that kind of modeling and that kind of uh, machine learning skill? More often than not, the answer is not. And people still go to these schools, and all they need learning to these schools is uh, uh, doing regression, prediction, classification, and all of those machine learning mo uh, models. And uh, guess what? I don't need any of that. I need data scientists uh, who can inform the business, who can resolve problems. So if you want to work in a business, 
stop spooking so much focus on machine learning and learn your analytics. You know, and uh, something that people don't understand also is that uh, machine learning exists within analytics too. And that's what it was born. Uh, and uh, more often than not, in, uh, in analytics, like you're going to use a simpler model, so because uh, you need interpretability. In analytics, neural networks are useless because you don't know how they reach to certain conclusions. So you're going to use uh, decision trees. Why? Because you can understand more about it. Yes. Right? And uh, I think I can teach my daughter to train a, a, a decision tree in an afternoon. <laughs> at, at six years old. Yes. She's my afternoon. No, we go back to the functional yes. models. Yes. And then maybe if you see the children get passionate about models, you can learn that at the later stage. Yeah, that's right. yeah so instead of uh, signing up, like there's a lot of these schools now that uh, are taking advantage of the hype around machine learning and you're just going to go there and you learn all these machine learning techniques and then you're going to come to me with those kind of skills and a curriculum that you have no experience in analytics and I'm going to be in the curriculum right away. Yes. So what we are looking for is hands-on analytics experience. And you can, you can uh, mature this experience uh, in many ways. Like internships are very strong. You know, the, to score an internship, you need to show people that you want to stay there for a longish time, so that you convince them then they're going to be, uh, they're going to bring more value, that they're going to consume time. Yes. Yeah, and uh, show a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of eager to show yourself eager to learn, and get there with some basic skills. But in my case, like probably analytic skills, are much more uh, valuable to me. The fact that you can know Excel and you know uh, how to interpret a chart is a lot more valuable to me than the fact that you learn uh, how to uh, train a, a neural network in school. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that was the first half. And yes, half? and the second half is advice for data science leaders or data science managers, people looking to move up yeah. um, to those levels. And uh, what I'm... Well, I don't have enough experience. Uh, this is my first time a manager. I wasn't a manager two and a half years ago. Really? Yeah. Because the, the style of management that, that you described, that, that, the, that paternal, putting the team forward, uh, first, um, helping them develop, uh, being, you know, creating those friendship, um, the, that friendship within the team, that is, that is fantastic. That is fantastic. And, and for example, like in my case, man, it took me a long time to learn that. And like I screwed up quite a lot before I was able to, to develop something similar. So if that's the first time you're managing, then congratulations, because that is amazing. And I think that that's the style of, of leadership and management that we, that we need, that we need more of in data science, of people being able to look at uh, you know, their employees understand their strengths and weaknesses and help them be better and develop them to be better so they can have a really good career. Thank you. That's a very positive comment. I have to say, like, I don't want to take the entire credit for it, but I think uh, it's more because I've been through so many horrible companies and so many horrible managers that, like, I didn't work for my team when I had to go through. So, <laughs> 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 
that's more or less how it was. And then, uh, ah, yeah, uh, I think uh, Management 3.0 is very powerful. Yes. I really liked it. And that would be another piece of advice for potential manager. Don't waste your time in those old school management courses who are going to come and give you recipes. Recipes don't work a lot. Use an agile approach. And uh, my advice is uh, taking uh, young people who are really curious, hire people not skills, because if they're good, they're going to acquire the skill very quickly. Uh, people who are very cooperative, they're really angry and curious, and uh, then give them everything they need. And then they're just going to have to watch them uh, grow into successful people. I love it. I love it. That is amazing. That is amazing. And it's fantastic not to add on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for your time, for sharing all these amazing insights. And oh, I can uh, speak about this for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> it's been fantastic. Thanks to you for listening. No, of course. It's been so interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye-bye. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.